What are the prospects for Mumia Abu-Jamal being set free after nearly 40 years in prison? Why would a progressive district attorney committed to investigating and overturning wrongful convictions and ending mass incarceration seemingly ignore the evidence of innocence and judicial impropriety on the part of America's most famous political prisoner? What purpose other than deterring crime is served by the penal system in Canada and the United States? What is behind the disproportionate number of indigenous peoples in Canadian prisons and black people in America? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we examine the ongoing injustices within the penitentiary systems in the U.S. and Canada and some prospects for correcting some of these injustices. In our first half hour, we hear from Suzanne Ross of International Concerned Family and Friends of Mumia Abu-Jamal about the latest developments in Mumia's legal situation. In our second half hour, University of Winnipeg professor Bronwyn Dobchuk-Land elaborates on the hidden function of prisons as instruments of social control and not of securing public safety, with an emphasis on the realities in Canada. On this week's program, Mumia Abu-Jamal and the Prison Industrial Complex. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 26, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the traditional territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The death of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi is proving to be a blessing in disguise for cash-strapped Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan. Mr. Khan's blessing is also likely to offer Saudi Arabia geopolitical advantage. On the principle of all good things are three, Mr. Khan struck gold on his second visit to the kingdom since coming to office in August. Mr. Khan was rewarded for attending Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's Showcase Investors Conference in Riyadh, dubbed Davos in the Desert, that was being shunned in numerous CEOs of Western financial institutions, tech entrepreneurs and media moguls, as well as senior Western government officials because of the Khashoggi affair. In talks with King Salman and the Crown Prince, Saudi Arabia promised to deposit $3 billion U.S. in Pakistan's central bank as balance of payments support and to defer up to $3 billion U.S. in payments for oil imports for a year. That comes from the article, The Khashoggi Crisis, A Blessing in Disguise for Pakistan's Imran Khan, by James M. Dorsey, posted October 24th, originally appearing on the author's blog site, The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer. If no miracle happens within the coming week, Brazil may be slanted to go back some 90 years into a fierce military dictatorship. Worse, today, with the neoliberal doctrine being the overarching last word on economic policies, also for the military. We are looking at full privatization of everything, of social services, water and health privatization has already begun, basic and profitable infrastructure, natural resources, and the IMF, World Bank, Fed, Wall Street, indebtedment is already well underway, and it's 
future programmed, including a devastating austerity program, which under unelected Mr. Corrupt Temer has already started. In fact, economic disaster in terms of dependence on IMF, WB, and the Fed may also loom under Haddad, who has already said he would work with the financial fiefdom of Washington, as Luis Inacio Lula did when he was elected in 2002. That comes from the article, Brazil, Bolsonaro towards a military dictatorship worse than 80 years ago, by Peter Koenig, posted October 24th. It seems that killing Palestinians is a sure source of respect, and the more one kills, and the faster one kills them, the better. The International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, or IHRA, has issued a definition of anti-Semitism, according to which merely stating that Israel is a racist endeavor qualifies as anti-Semitism. The IHRA campaign to have its definition accepted intentionally has succeeded and several states and non-governmental agencies have adopted it. One must see this campaign in the context of the reality Israel has imposed in Palestine for over seven decades. It is a reality that cannot be described as anything but a ruthless, racist endeavor. That comes from the article, Israel invokes its fight for survival as it descends into a racist state by Miko Pellid, posted October 24th, originally appearing at Mint Press News. One knowledgeable Middle East expert has suggested that Lafer Khashoggi is one way of getting rid of the crown prince. It's not clear yet if it was either the Americas or the Israelis acting alone or in concert. However, tricking Mohammed bin Salman into ordering the journalist's death using some of his own security guards to do so is one way of accomplishing this. Letting the crown prince overextend himself, then figuratively pulling the rug out from under him is effective. Adding three weeks' work of leaks, speculation, and facts only contributes to Bin Salman's end. That comes from the article, Can We Canonize Khashoggi? And For the Love of God, Why? By J. Michael Springman, posted October 24th. Contrary to Giovanni's assumptions, some Western journalists and activists were exposing the white helmets long before the story was publicized on Russian media. In spring 2015, the basic facts about the White Helmets, including their origins, funding, and role in the information war on Syria, were exposed in my article, Seven Steps of Highly Effective Manipulators. The article showed how the White Helmets were a key component in a campaign pushing for a no-fly zone in Syria. It confirmed that the White Helmets is a political lobby force. That comes from the article, Western Media Attacks Critics of the White Helmets, The New McCarthyism, by Rick Sterling, posted October 24th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Mumia Abu-Jamal is arguably the most famous political prisoner in the U.S. and among the best known in the world. Initially arrested in 1981 and charged with the murder of Philadelphia police officer Daniel Faulkner, he was placed on death row. Multiple irregularities have been exposed in his case, pointing to his innocence and to judicial and police impropriety. 
Thanks in large part to an international campaign on his behalf, Mumia was taken off death row in 2011 and is now serving a life sentence. Joining us to elaborate on the course of the current legal action is none other than Suzanne Ross, clinical psychologist and a longtime anti-imperialist activist and representative of International Concerned Family and Friends of Mumia Abu-Jamal, also a past guest of this program. She spoke at a press conference yesterday in which she and other supporters called for the current district attorney, Larry Krasner, to stop his efforts to deprive Mumia of a new appeal. Welcome back to the Global Research News Hour, Suzanne. Thank you, Michael. I'm very happy to be back. The last time you spoke to us in the spring, you mentioned two arguments in support of Mumia, um, humanitarian considerations, uh, but also judicial bias on the part of a former Pennsylvania Supreme Court justice presiding over Mumia's appeals in the late 90s and early 2000s. Could you take us through those arguments? Yes. So, um, Ronald Castile is a pretty well-known character in Philadelphia because he was worked in the district attorney's office of Philadelphia and was a known pro-death penalty, rabid pro-death penalty uh, speaker and activist within that framework of power. And he also um, was someone who was very, very close to the Fraternal Order of Police, by which I mean he got huge amount of financial support from them, he campaigned for them, uh, I mean, campaigned in support of their program, and they campaigned for him to win when he was running for uh, justice of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. So he is very, very much and has always been tied to the most anti-Mumia, anti-what uh, we call semblance of justice in the uh, penal system, and um, campaigned on that and was very proud, for example, bragged about how the 45 people who had at some point were sentenced uh, to death were sentenced to death because of his work. Um, he bragged a lot about his hands-on uh, approach to, uh, in other words, he, does, he watches every case, kind of, is what he implied, and he certainly bragged about that. He now claims, <laughs> well, you know, first going back, so back in 1998, I believe it was, and 2002, when he was first um, in the position to rule on Mumia's appeal, in other words, Mumia was appealing the fact that he had been convicted and sentenced to death in a kangaroo court in a process that was denounced all over the world, including by Amnesty International, as being outrageous violation of any kind of semblance of justice. So Mumia went through that, and people said, well, don't worry, he'll go. He'll have many chances. I still remember that because I was active back then. Don't worry, he'll have plenty chances to appeal, um, first of all, in the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, and then later on in the federal court. Well, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania was essentially a rubber stamping of everything that had happened previously because I think it was four out of however many there are um, Supreme Court justices had been supported by the Fraternal Lord of Police and they literally just said no to every single basis for appeal that was presented by the lawyers, every single one. So at the end of all, so in the middle of that, I mean, in 1998, there was a Mumia's lawyers asking for Castile to recuse himself, and he says, no, no, I can be completely fair, I'm not prejudiced, here's this extremely biased person, and specifically 
biased against Mumia, who was no, the most well-known political prisoner in this country. And they, their, the campaign, <clears throat> the slogan of the Fraternal Order of Police, and I used to see this all the time. When I came to Philadelphia, you'd see it in the streets. You'd see it over the headquarters of the Fraternal Order of Police. There was a big sign saying, Fry Mumia. And that was their slogan, Fry Mumia. <clears throat> and Castile was that part of that whole ambiance and people. So um, with no agreement to recuse himself, the case then went to federal court with total approval by every single corner of the state appeals. Now, people may not remember, and you may, that in 1996, under the leadership of uh, Bill Clinton, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act was passed, which essentially severely limited the appeals process once you left state court. In other words, the level of the, the, the requirement, what was required to prove that an appeal or some decision that was contrary to what happened in state court was uh, valid, was enormous. You know, the bar was set very, very high. And essentially, we developed a political, uh, a penal system that was even more anti-defendant um, and uh, uh, geared towards simply each each higher level rubber stamping what happened in the lower levels. So the fact that Mumia was framed and originally tried by the most pro-death penalty judge in the country and someone who had specifically sent a lot of black people to uh, death row, and someone who had actually retired, but was brought back in or asked to be brought in, it doesn't matter, to do the job. And he was brought back in and did the job. And in the Pennsylvania system, again, to clarify, it's sometimes so hard to demystify the legal process because it's all meant to confuse people and keep people from understanding what an outrageous system it is. So um, the system um, at that time was that, um, and I think it still is actually in Pennsylvania, that whoever was the judge in the original case at the lowest level then was in charge of the appeals process as well until it then went to the federal, to the uh, Supreme Court. So that's the kind of process Mumia was, caught in, and um, Castile was such a major part of making all that possible. You know, you've, you've been referring to, uh, in your campaign, you're referring to a Supreme Court decision in uh, 2016, Williams versus Pennsylvania, which uh, yes. you've been invoking to disqualify Castile based on that, uh, these yes. indications. I'm glad I was going to go to that next. Okay. I wanted to make sure people could... It's kind of complicated to follow, not because it's that hard, but it, it's, you know, it's legalese. It's, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been involved in this for decades, literally, and I have to go over it again and again and again to make sure I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so forgive me for going on, but I'm also an educator, and I believe in communication, and I want to make sure that people understand what I'm saying. Well, sure, we so, appreciate it. So what happened was a major breakthrough. You know, Mumia's case has been, for all intents and purposes, closed. 
He is sentenced to life in prison without parole. He's not on death row any longer, but he has no chance of ever getting out if nothing new happens. So lo and behold, in 2016, Williams, who had been sentenced to death and was scheduled to actually be executed, an amazing, I don't know what to call it, coincidence, irony, whatever, but here's Williams, who had been sentenced to death and uh, was scheduled to be executed, and the current governor of Pennsylvania, no radical by any means, but not an enthusiast for the death penalty, um, ruled, you know, to not give him a stay of execution. In other words, that he was not um, to be executed. So here's this man, barely survives execution, I believe it was like a days before his scheduled execution date that the governor gave him this reprieve of sorts. And his lawyers find that Ronald Castile had been his original, the district attorney at the lower level, court level, and then, like in Mumia's case, was reviewed the case when he was in Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. And uh, their ruling, the judge, the jury, the judge uh, in that case was blasted, blasted um, Castile for not recusing himself and for obviously having a conflict of interest and cited all these things that I just mentioned about Castile, a known proponent of the death penalty, someone who said he was a hands-on lawyer, because he's now claiming that he hardly knew these cases. That he was just, you know, his assistants did all the work. He hardly knew, was not in touch with it. Contrary to everything he had bragged about for years, that he was a hands-on uh, judge. So this, this case had gone all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, and the United States Supreme Court ruled that um, Castile was, should have recused himself, and therefore Williams was entitled to a new appeals process. Well, when Mumia's lawyers saw that, and Castile's name no less, uh, they immediately appealed for Mumia to have a new appeals process. In other words, he would still be um, he would still be on, on in prison, and he would still be in prison for life at this point. It's not like he would get out tomorrow, but he would have a whole appeals process that could lead to not only a new trial but to his freedom. Because if they didn't give him a new trial, they'd have to release him. So it was a major, and everybody was very, very excited about this wonderful new opportunity, and we all went to work publicizing the issues, getting ready to go to court, and doing everything that was necessary. And on top of that, and this is the key that I really want all your listeners and to be aware of, because this is a national issue, and it's very, very serious because the propaganda around it has been so misleading, including an article that just came out in the New Yorker magazine that I was told about last night when I came back from Philadelphia from this press conference. At any rate, um, the issue that, has, that, that made people even more optimistic, aside from this legal decision in the United States Supreme Court, Presumably, we now have this great new guy as district attorney in Philadelphia. No longer these uh, pro-FOP, right-wing Republicans, et cetera, et cetera, but a genuine liberal who 
had defended Black Lives Matter, had defended people, uh, defended people in the Occupy movement, had really played an important role as a um, lawyer who defended victims. And people were shocked that this seemingly progressive guy was now going to rerun for the district attorney, which is a very different kind of role than being the defense attorney for victims of police brutality, et cetera, et cetera. He ran on a ticket that he would hold cops accountable for uh, crimes they committed against civilians and not treat them as untouchable, you know, um, gods that whatever they did was right, that he really was going to... He ran on a different... uh, He was going to lower... He was going to drop bail for minor crimes, cash bail requirements. He... um, he, he ran for a lot of things, <clears throat> and some of these things he immediately did, like he did the cash, the cash bail issue for minor crimes. He actually also recommended that some of the move prisoners be released. <clears throat> and he also uh, began uh, identifying some people, uh, a whole bunch of people who he forced to resign, and so on and so on. So the first few things he did were close to what he had promised, and again, people were very excited. But lo and behold, when he became district attorney, the first of the, first of the year of this year, 2018, you could not tell the difference between him and all the other DAs that preceded him when it came to Mumia. And I repeat, the way he behaved was... I'm talking about not just him, but I'm talking about his office, his representatives in the courtroom up until the last hearing, which was on August 30th, just a couple of months ago. And I tell people, and again, I want to remind people, I've been involved in this case since about 1993. So I was sitting in the courtroom on August 30th of this year and listening to the DA's assistant go on and say that there was absolutely no evidence of Castile's involvement with Mumia, and that Mumia was in no way entitled to a new review process, and they should stop the, essentially a fishing expedition and stop looking at more, asking for more documents and more proof, and simply close the case. Suzanne? And that's in a nutshell <clears throat> where we now find ourselves with a, a di- district attorney who people think is a wonderful guy and He's being raved about all across the country as a, you know, trailblazer who essentially is an enemy right now. And I say enemy of Mumia Abu-Jamal. The, the, the progressive uh, credentials that he have already been expressed, on top of that, you bring a very, seem to bring a very strong argument forward, which is backed up by the National Lawyers Guild, Guild the National Conference of Black Lawyers, uh, Michigan chapter, Kathleen Cleaver of the Emory Law School, uh, figures like Noam Chomsky, Alice Walker, Ed Asner, and others. How do you make sense of uh, Mr. Krasner's, why does he seem to be so... Uh, you know, aligned with the uh, the fraternal order of police on this issue, whereas he seems to be more uh, progressive in these other areas. I mean, w- what is it about this specific case? Well, first of all, I'm absolutely delighted, and all of us are, that people like Chomsky and like Cornell West and Kathleen Cleaver, and most especially lawyers groups like the National Confer- the National Lawyers Guild and the National Conference of Black Lawyers, that they saw 
that what we were presenting was correct <clears throat> and that they were willing to sign a letter to Krasna that's very, very strong saying you're doing the wrong thing and, you know, you should shape up immediately. I mean, I'm putting it in lay terms, <laughs> but essentially that's what that letter says. And what my analysis is, it reminds me back about maybe eight years ago, <clears throat> the world... Um, Conference Against the Death Penalty, I don't remember the exact name, was petitioned by the U.S. Anti-Death Penalty Conference saying, look, if you leave Mumia out of the discussion, we can get police groups and we can get all kinds of groups to support it and to support a ban of the death penalty <clears throat> as long as the ban from Mumia's death sentence does not get lifted. So why is Mumia hated so much, and why is he singled out as a potential exception? And it reminds me, by the way, of, of what they used to ask uh, some of the uh, collaborating Jews during the Holocaust. Um, to If you turn in the following ten people, you give us ten people, and we'll protect everyone else. And of course, in the end, they killed everyone else anyway. But People fell for it, and they would give up the names of ten people, and usually they were communists. So members of the Communist Party in Poland, Jewish members of the Communist Party, were turned over to the Nazis in the hope that that would spare everyone else. So what I think is happening is much the same thing, that Krasner and his immediate people are reasoning, look, we can get lowered bail, we can get <clears throat> bring some of the move people home, we can um, do this, we can get these major accomplishments, and yes, we will not free Mumia Abu-Jamal, we won't, we'll throw him under the bus, even though they won't say it in those words, but nobody really expected him to be free anyway, <clears throat> and he was supposed to be dead in the first place, and so it's worth it, what we're gaining is worth it, and that is the logic of what I call a sellout, <laughs> or what I call an unprincipled, a bargain, a bargain with the devil. When you start bargaining the devil, which is, okay, I'll give you, if you give me 80% of what I want, I will give you the most important 20%, and we will make a deal. It's deal-making. It's not justice. It's not dealing with the truth. Mumia was framed in the first place. Mumia's innocent. Mumia should never have been in prison. He never should have been arrested. <clears throat> so to make that deal that you're willing to sacrifice Mumia because of the gains you're going to get, that's making a deal with the devil. Hmm. He's peddling flesh. <laughs> okay, uh, we, we just got about a minute left. Uh, Suzanne, in the time remaining, could, could you let our listeners know what, what could be done to try to uh, reverse the state of affairs to, to help Mumia at this uh, critical juncture? Well, we have one weekend before the hearing on Monday. If you go to freemumia.com, there's, um, uh, go to the section that says New International Letter. Click onto that, and you'll see there's a letter to Krasner that you can download, a PDF. You can download it. Email it to him. We want to flood him with emails from around the country, letting him know that his reputation is at stake, that he cannot do this and present himself as a good guy who's concerned with justice. 
And if you read that article, I just read it last night, it was chilling for me to read the New Yorker presenting how wonderful he is. Never once mentioned Mumia Abu-Jamal. The article never mentioned Mumia Abu-Jamal. So that's people, people fall for, the, for all kinds of seductions, for all kinds of tricks, psychological tricks that are meant to fool people and to make them go along with a corrupt program. And I say what Krasner is doing is corrupt, is a sellout of, somebody said yesterday, um, to, Professor Tony Montero spoke and he said, look, black people brought you into office and black people love Mumia Bujamal. Don't you dare sell him out because you will never get elected again in Philadelphia. So I hope people in Philadelphia remember all this. <clears throat> I hope people around the country see that all these articles that are coming about how great Krasna is, when you see that, speak up. Let people know that he's selling out one of the most beloved political prisoners of the world. I can't tell you how many letters I get and the kinds of support we get from around the world. Nine members of the Danish parliament uh, less than a year ago signed a letter. You know, I mean... People like Noam Chomsky, people like Alice Walker, they're not fools. If they're willing to challenge this very seemingly progressive DA, enough people are beginning to know that something's wrong and we better all speak up before it's too late. Suzanne, thanks so much for you taking the time to talk to us and good luck with the campaign. It's a pleasure and thank you so much for your support. Bye-bye. We've been speaking to Suzanne Ross of the International Concerned Family and Friends of Mumia Abu-Jamal. She joined us from New York City. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. The long-term incarceration of black activists like Mumia Abu-Jamal and the Move 9 comes within a context of the criminalization of black bodies. There's a disproportionate number of black people serving sentences in the nation's penitentiaries, in custody or on parole. In her 2010 book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, civil rights attorney-turned-legal scholar Michelle Alexander argues that the criminal justice system in the United States serves as a mechanism by which millions of people of color have been denied basic rights such as the right to vote and freedom from discrimination when it comes to access to housing, employment, education, and public welfare, simply by calling them felons. Building on this thesis is another long-time prison rights activist and outspoken public intellectual, Angela Davis. Here she is speaking to an audience at the Knox United Church in Winnipeg, Manitoba, on May 6, 2017. You know that... Uh 25% of all people incarcerated uh, in the world are in prison in the U.S., right? And you also know that one-third of all women on the planet who are in prison are in prison in the U.S. And if we cl included Canada uh, in those statistics, they would be even more dramatic. Uh, uh, but... There's a reason why suddenly, in the 1980s, things began to change. And I always point out that when I first began working around prison issues, and there were 200,000 people in prison in the U.S., and we were aghast that there were so many people, and now they're uh, moving towards 2.5 million.
And that has to do both with the ways in which racism came to fuel uh, this um, uh, soaring prison population at a time when shifts in, that were occasioned by global capitalism destroyed opportunities, destroyed dreams for so many poor people and especially people of color and especially black people when um, factories began to shut down and to move across the water or across the border. Uh, when the auto industry, uh, which Donald Trump talks a lot about. See, the problem is he doesn't understand the complexity of what has happened you know, over the last period. And he doesn't recognize that his own billions are a consequence of those shifts. And at the same time, he represents himself as a savior to those who have been hurt by the uh, attack on unions and the, and, and, and the migration of corporations. The first immigrants were the corporations. Yes. And they not only wrought havoc in communities uh, at home, leaving people without jobs, and at the same time, of course, we had this period uh, of the disestablishment of the welfare state and the juggernaut of privatization, so that, that, that schools became um, less funded and inaccessible, and, and, and health care became privatized and unavailable. And so you had a huge number of people who had no jobs, who had no housing, who had no health care, who had no education. And so the issue was what to do with this surplus population. And that's where the prisons came in. Canada's penal system arguably serves a societal role similar to the one it serves in the U.S., which goes beyond ostensibly protecting the public and deterring criminal behavior. A country established through a sophisticated process of colonization, which undermined pivotal supports of the indigenous population, the number of people of indigenous ancestry in Canadian prisons is significantly out of proportion with their presence in the general Canadian population. To share some insights into the hidden functions served by Canada's penal system, we're joined by Bronwyn Dobchuk Land. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Criminal Justice at the University of Winnipeg. Her research focuses on the politics of prisons, policing, colonialism, and the carceral state in Manitoba and beyond. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour, Bronwyn. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Now, I wonder if you could first of all speak to some of the realities of prison life right now, because I think there's a lot of mythology out there about what people go through and, and a, not a lot of awareness of just some of the, uh, uh, just the extent to yeah. which rights are deprived within prison. I mean, are there some perhaps illustrative abuses you could uh, speak to? Um, I mean, there are, there are incidents of, of, you know, what, what we might call brutality inside prisons every day. Um, it's the norm, not the, <clears throat> not the exception, excuse me. <coughs> Um, 
Yeah, there's a lot of misperception about prisons in Canada. I think because we are next to the United States and the United States kind of always serves as this, um, you know, things couldn't possibly be as bad here as they are there. Um, people assume that our prisons are more progressive, um, that there are better conditions within our prisons, um, that our prisons somehow work better to do the things that they imagine prisons do. Um, but that is just not the case. We have a, a growing... Um, prison and mostly jail system in Canada. And I can talk about the distinction there. Um, and, uh, prisons don't have an impact on crime rates. <laughs> um, so I've been on CKUW before, obviously talking about policing, not having an impact on crime rates, prisons also don't. So we imagine that prisons serve a rehabilitative function. Um, some people imagine that, um, or that punishment is somehow a deterrent, but, um, Spending time imprisoned um, is much more likely to significantly disrupt someone's life and make it a lot harder for them to live after prison, after being imprisoned, than it is to somehow, you know, change their behavior. Um, it's also worth noting that, um, as is the case in the United States, uh, the vast majority of people who are imprisoned in Canada are poor people of color. Um... So not the numerical majority. I think numerically there are more white people than people of color in Canadian prisons, but um, in terms of proportions uh, relative to the population. And so uh, it's really important for us to, to think about kind of the the function that the prison serves beyond just public safety. You, you mentioned how there's no indications yeah. that uh, it's doing anything to alter or reduce uh, crime rates. Yeah. And, um, I mean, is this something that's pretty much well acknowledged across the board because the general public does have this, I mean, prisons yeah. are very, very yeah. expensive. Uh-huh. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's one of the most, it's something that drives my interest in criminal justice is that it's just kind of the most, like one of the most stark differences between accepted evidence within the, you know, academics and researchers and public perception. So the public assumes that police and prisons reduce crime rates and increase safety. And it is accepted wisdom within criminal justice circles that um, prisons don't do that. Um, there's always the hope that if we do different things to prisons, that they might be better at reducing recidivism or reoffending, that they might get better at keeping people safer. Um, but I think that the fact that we continue to operate prisons, even though we know through decades and decades of evidence that they don't reduce crime or produce public safety is a really good indicator that there's something else going on. Um, <clears throat> the forces that are sustaining um, prison and jail expansion are forces other than a genuine concern for public safety. Um, one of the most important characteristics of the Canadian justice system right now, if we take a snapshot, is that um, more people are on remand than in sentenced custody. So another misperception that people have about um, the criminal justice system is that the people who are there are people who have been found guilty through a trial. Um, you know, evidence has been put forward on either side and they're serving some, you know, sentence according to Canadian laws relative to, uh, you know, proportional to the offense that they committed. In fact, and in Manitoba and Ontario, this is, and Alberta, this is most acute, in Manitoba, 
70% of people who are locked up right now haven't even had a trial yet. So that's what it means to be on remand. So in fact, the reality of our justice system is much more than punishing people for things that they have done. It's a system that relies heavily on policing to remove people from the streets for minor offenses um, and lock them up for short periods of time. So most people who are on remand are there for less than a month. Many people are there for less than a week. Um, so the system is actually, um, it functions much more to disrupt the lives of poor people who are committing minor offenses and breaches of conditions um, than it does to actually punish people for serious crimes. This parallels uh, what we're hearing in the United Absolutely. States. And I mean, I mean, there's a, a book by Michelle Alexander, mm -hmm. uh, the, the famous, fairly uh, prominent book, The uh, the New Jim Crow, which uh, discusses how this whole system of incarceration, of mass incarceration in the yeah. United States, essentially serves the role of... Uh, you know, a kind of an end run around the, mm -hmm. uh, some of the civil rights uh, achievements. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, we end up with a good third of the U.S. male, adult male population uh, with basically uh, the same uh, lack of rights. And you, you're talking there about re people in remand. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they've also, even though they haven't formally been uh, mm -hmm. found guilty of anything, mm -hmm. they're seeing, uh, are they seeing similar... Uh, deprivations of their basic rights. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, people who are in, in remanded custody have less access to services, programs. In most places across Canada, they have no access to services or programs. Um, in Manitoba, there's been a few exceptions made, probably because we have such a big remand population. But um, being on remand is much more precarious um, stressful, uncertain, um, crowded than being in sentenced custody. Um, and people die on remand. I mean, people die in sentenced custody as well, but a really, you know, prominent example from the last few years in Winnipeg is the death of Errol Green. He was picked up for, um, a breach of condition, which means that he had previously been involved in the criminal justice system. He had conditions set for his release, um, making many behaviors that are not actually illegal, illegal in the context of his condition. So he was picked up for drinking or for having had a drink. Um, and he was um, taken into remanded custody and denied his epilepsy medication, anti-epilepsy medication, um, which he repeatedly asked for. Um, and structurally speaking, uh, remand prisons, jails are built um, to contain risk, not to serve the health of the population. And the people who they are holding in them are defined as the risk in and of themselves. So um, in that context, uh, people are denied medication. Um, they are, you know, treated brutally. They're, they're beaten up. Their needs are ignored. Um, yeah, and, and people die. Mm. You know, these uh, indicators remind me of a, a famous experiment. I'm sure you've studied it very closely. I think it's called the Stanford Experiment, mm -hmm. in which you had students that were arbitrarily assigned the roles of either guard or prisoner. Yeah. And they had to end the experiment because the uh, the, the students, you know, ordinarily, I mean, they're all pretty yeah. much the same background, but 
in adopting the role of guard, they were behaving very abusively toward the the other students that were uh, there. And yeah, uh, yeah. so uh, we're we're talking about the same phenomenon. Something about this institution just transforms. uh, Yeah, I mean that the Stanford prison experiment is cited a lot and people have tried to do it again and it hasn't quite come up with the same results. Okay. But but your point is well taken. Like that is the point I'm trying to make that there that the structure the demands of a prison of a carceral facility um, are fundamentally at odds with the health and well-being of prisoners. And as the inquest into Errol Green's death unfolds, I've only attended a couple of days of it. Um, but um, I I attended days where nurses and correctional officers were interviewed. And, you know, these can be um, good, well-meaning people, whatever. I mean, I, I, it pains me to say that about the people who were responsible for Errol Green's death. I don't think <laughs> we can say that. But, um, but they were under um, general institutional orders to, you know, prioritize security above all else and in the context of our you know racist society um the ways they interpreted errol green seizing asking for help i mean he was he was not taken seriously he was uh pinned down on the ground when he was having a seizure because he was deemed to be a threat i mean these kinds of things like uh, basically I think they they kind of encapsulate why it is that um, yeah that prisons could never be responsible f- for the well being of people. I'd like to, uh, I mean, speaking to the the racial mm-hmm. racialized dimension of this issue, I just want to bring up a few statistics from a recent report. Um, in uh, according to in <clears throat> according to uh, uh, this report, uh, the percentage of the indigenous population of Canada is only five percent, but the prison population was twenty seven percent. That's between 2016 2017, which is an 8% increase mm-hmm. over the previous decade. And with Indigenous youth, who make up 8% of the Canadian population, there's been a, there was a 46% of all admissions to correctional institutions mm-hmm. um, were Indigenous youth. And that's a 23% increase over the previous decade. Uh, the professor uh, and Micmac lawyer, uh, uh, Ryerson professor um, Pam Palmiter has referred to prisons as, uh, quote, es- essentially the new residential schools. Mm-hmm. And the former corrections uh, investigator, Howard Sapers, called it uh, an artifact of colonial control. Mm-hmm. So, well, I don't know if it can be said it's an art. I mean, an artifact of colonial control suggests that somehow it's left over from some past col- colonialism. But we can trace, I mean, the past to the present day structures of colonialism in the criminal justice system, we know that, you know, policing um, originated uh, in Canada, in the in the West, um, primarily to keep indigenous people uh, on reserves away from um, unfolding 
you know, development dreams of the Canadian nation state um, to enforce the past system. I mean, policing in Canada has always been um, totally interconnected with uh, the task of securing spaces for capitalist profitability in Canada. Um, It was the case in the past. It's the case in the present. I mean, we know that there's heightened policing in downtown areas that the, uh, that, you know, local capitalists are trying to um, secure for urban revitalization schemes. Uh, We know that policing ramps up at the same time as, um, indigenous resistance ramps up and so there's really strong indigenous resistance to to pipelines to ongoing colonial control um and that is a threat to the canadian nation state and um i think we there's a lot of work to be done to trace exactly how it is the exactly the continuities between past and present um in terms of colonialism and and criminal justice and there are people who are doing that work um but it's fair to say that yeah yeah well i mean it's like some of our listeners might say well you know these people were uh, placed in custody or locked up or whatever mm-hmm. because they they did something wrong you know they and i mean you you mm-hmm. did cite well the minor infractions mm-hmm. uh, but you know resulting in such a huge population uh, but I, I don't know. I, I think it's it, it still seems difficult, given that we are living in these times uh, mm-hmm. when there's uh, been a lot of talk about reconciliation, mm-hmm. uh, and you know we, we're seeing trends kind of moving against that rhetoric. I mean, a glib response to the the, the, the racialized dimension of, uh, of policing in prisons would be well hypocrisy, but. Um, I don't know. Is there a way we can better concretize this situation so that we we can really sort of sink our teeth into like, how is, how how does this translate into uh, that marginalization? Yeah. Well, um, so there's a lot of interesting writing about the politics of reconciliation from critical indigenous scholars like Glenn Coulthard and Audra Simpson, um, who kind of highlight how reconciliation is a, is a, is a discourse. It's a, it's a set of flowery words and language, and it doesn't really reflect kind of ongoing material conditions of indigenous people's lives. Reconciliation has yet to lead to, you know, more land for indigenous people, let's say. So that's the politics of reconciliation. Um, on one side, there's a lot of lip service and not a lot of kind of material change in the lives of indigenous people. Um, and taking analysis from the United States, from authors like um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore in the United States, Michelle Alexander, to a certain extent, um, trying to understand the connection between um, the dispossession of poor people of color and the rise of the prison system. Um, Those conditions that make people more vulnerable in their lives, so conditions that make people homeless, hungry, um, exclude them from work. Um, those are kind of three or, or just have insecure housing, be poor. All of these conditions make people more vulnerable to carceral 
power to carceral control. So when we're talking about the connection between capitalism and colonialism and the rise of criminal justice, we're talking about kind of structural racism, the production of surplus populations. So uh, large swaths of young men of color. Again, this is an analysis taken from the United States, and I think we need to work to figure out how exactly it fits in Canada. But, um, you know, large populations of young men of color uh, who are structurally excluded from the labor force, um, and that serves a function for capitalism. Capitalism requires inequality. It requires a surplus population of laborers. Um, and um, racism combined with the criminal justice system um, provide a, a way for us to make sense of how to deal with those people who are structurally unemployed and at the bottom of the social ladder. And I think that's a really good explanation because it does help to explain why so many young men of color are imprisoned in Canada for really not serious offenses. They're picked up um, by police who are seeking them out, who are hunting them down, I would say. Um, They're patrolling areas for young men who might appear to be trouble. Um, They're booking them into remand on minor breaches of condition. Um, And that's who's filling our jails. So there's a, yeah, there's a relationship between um, kind of structural exclusion, economic marginality, and imprisonment that doesn't necessarily go the route of a kind of popular liberal explanation that says poor people are more likely to commit crime. I don't think this is about explanations for why people are committing crime. We need to look for explanations for why groups of people are being systematically policed. Okay. Um could I get your thoughts about, uh, I mean, in Canada, mm-hmm. we don't yet have uh, any private prisons. I mean, there was a, a private prison at, in Ontario, I, I believe, in mm-hmm. early in the last decade. But uh, currently, took it over but, again. Yeah. yeah, but uh, there are Canadian legislators who are looking seriously at, at importing private prisons. Mm-hmm. To, to what extent do you see you would, would a pri- the privatization of the prison industry uh, in Canada uh, exacerbate the, the situation? I don't I don't think it necessarily would exacerbate it. And that kind of goes against um, a kind of uh, critical common sense. Um, Again, borrowing analyses from the United States where there are private prisons, um, only about five percent of people who are locked up in the United States are locked up in private prison facilities. Um, Privatization is not a major driver of mass incarceration in the United States. In a lot of states where private prisons have been successfully closed down and taken over by public entities, um, imprisonment has gone up, not down. So, um, well, I think that uh, privatization is, you know, a a problematic economic trend. Um, The real problem is prison itself, (laughs) imprisonment itself. So I think that... um, the anti-privatization of prison lobby kind of distracts from the fact that um, the real drivers of um, imprisonment, you know, in the United States and and in Manitoba as well, uh, prison guard unions have had (laughs) more impact than private prison lobbyers in terms of expanding prisons. In Manitoba, the MGEU, during the time the NDP was in office, um, was an extremely vocal proponent of building more 
prison beds in uh, ostensibly to improve the safety of uh, their workers. So um, uh, there are a lot of industries, um, private industries that are already profiting from the publicly driven expansion of imprisonment across Canada. So there are certainly private interests that coalesce with um, public interests in responding to social and economic problems with policing surveillance imprisonment. Um, but I don't think that um, focusing on the privatization issue uh, will help us strategically in terms of reducing imprisonment. Okay. I, I guess as, as a final point, uh, you do consider yourself a prison abolitionist. Yeah. Um, which is different from being merely calling for prison reform, which you do, but mm -hmm. you know, with a long-term goal of abolition. Yeah. What, what could you say to audiences who, who might have difficulty uh, – you with that concept because they recognize there is dangerous behavior. Uh, I mean, notwithstanding everything yeah. you've said so far, there is dangerous na behavior that uh, does need to be corrected and, and sanctioned. So how, how could we uh, address those? Um, how can we achieve uh, a more uh, the, the goals that mm -hmm. we all share of, of public safety, but uh, you yeah. know, without using these sorts of uh, prison systems? Yeah, thanks for that question. I love answering that question. Um, and it comes out a little differently every time because I'm always thinking about what abolition means and I think that um, abolitionists everywhere are. Um, first, I'll again reiterate the premise that prisons and policing actually do a really bad job of holding people accountable for their... Um, actions. So if we're talking about real accountability in terms of um, those people who are in jail for or prison for things they have done that are bad, that have harmed their communities, um, the criminal justice system removes from them from their communities. It, it doesn't, um, you know, successfully engage in any meaningful accountability processes. So definitely part of the abolitionist vision is meaningful accountability for harmful behavior. But even more so, um, abolitionism is, is a world-building project. It says um, we need to create a world um, that makes prisons unimaginable. So abolitionists organize around things like better health care in the United States, access to free health care, full employment, access to free access to good, well-paying jobs, um, access to affordable housing, um, building a world where people are um, safe, secure, supported, um, and uh, therefore less likely to uh, fall victim to carceral power. Abolitionism, I would say, is a fundamentally anti-capitalist and anti-colonial world-building project. Bronwyn, Bronwyn Dobchuk-Land, <laughs> thank you so much for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I've been speaking with Bronwyn Dobchuk-Land. She's assistant professor in the Department of Criminal Justice at the University of Winnipeg. She joined us here at the CKUW studio. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. 
To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.